From CPR News in Grand Junction, this is Colorado Matters. Can Grand Junction strike the right balance, maintaining its small-town charm while luring jobs and amenities that add to the quality of life? What I want is, you know, what everybody wants, a, a vibrant enough city, but not too big. We'll stroll down Main Street. Then a controversial plan to get natural gas from western Colorado to Asia. Why Governor Polis is neutral. It's not the type of industry that can be counted on day in and day out for providing jobs and being the backbone of a community. But he's not neutral on moving a federal agency west. It would mean a lot more to our state if the BLM chose Grand Junction, which is what we're pushing for. Plus, what's cooking in the Grand Valley and a musical project, Generations in the Making. You will rise up. Hey, Ryan Warner, will you do me a favor and push this button? I will push this button here on Main Street in Grand Junction. It looks like a crossing signal. Forgive others that have hurt you so you can see clearly. Wait, it gives you a word of affirmation? Yeah, push it again. Okay. If you're lost and can't find someone to guide you, find someone who is more lost and guide them. Find your way together. This is one of the things when I first got to town, I was so impressed with it. Just because it's like one of those little surprises, which I feel like the Grand Valley and really like Grand Junction in particular, it's just full of. This is CPR's Western Slope reporter, Stina Sieg, and I'm Colorado Matters host, Ryan Warner. And we are standing on Main Street in Grand Junction under a piece of art called, what is this called? Affirmation Station. The Affirmation Station. (laughs) I certainly feel affirmed. So it looks like a crosswalk, but it doles out emotional support. One of many public art pieces that line Main Street, along with big trees and shops and restaurants. And I really feel like Main Street is just this microcosm of all of Grand Junction. I mean, you've got the tourists and the old timers and the cowboys and the hippies and the college students and the grandparents. And, you know, I think it's always been this way, at least since I started visiting here about a decade ago. But after finally living here, I moved here, you know, six months ago, I have such a better sense of how Main Street really represents this place. So let me show you around. Before you do, let me say, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. And we're broadcasting today and tomorrow from the Western Slope. And Stina, I understand that we're off to a place called Factory. Uh, Why don't you lead the way? Let's go. Okay, this is the building? Yeah. This is clearly not a factory that makes widgets. It kind of looks like Boulder, to be honest. Yeah, so this is Factory. It's a co-working space. And it's like, okay, if we were in Boulder or we were in Denver or we were in Vail, this probably wouldn't be the biggest deal. But when this place opened a couple years ago, folks were really skeptical. Like, is there really a need for a co-working space? Folks working remotely, freelancers, people starting up businesses. So, yeah, and actually, you know, it's really bumping. I met this guy who comes in from Palisade, which is 12 miles away. Yeah. And he was so excited because he says it's much busier than any co-working space he went to on the Front Range. And out front, there are bike racks and a fix-it station. In fact, there's a gentleman here fixing his mountain bike. I have a feeling this is the kind of place where you might mountain bike on your lunch hour, Stina Seek. Yeah, or before work or after work in addition. What do you think this says about Grand Junction? Well, folks in economic development, they say that it shows how hungry this place really is for office space and that there are way more remote workers and freelance workers than originally thought. You know, and that Mesa County is really ready for these sorts of big city amenities. 
It's hot as blazes out here. Let's go in and see if we can meet one of these West Slope techies. Yeah, let's do it. My name is John Walden. I live in Grand Junction. Tell us what your line of work is. I'm in digital marketing and part of a company called My Sales Butler, and we work for clients here and across the country. Why Grand Junction? Because this is where my family is, and this is where my roots are. I wouldn't live anywhere, anyplace else. It sounds like you've been here a long time. What have you noticed about the change, let's say, in the business scene? Um, when I came to Grand Junction, I was doing business consulting, anything I could get my hands on, did house remodeling, etc., you know, whatever I could do. There wasn't a community of businesses that were tech-related that I could see. It uh, wasn't very visible. I mean, there really was a time when the Western Slope's eggs were in one basket, the energy basket. Yeah, well, uh, energy and, of course, being the biggest city between here and Salt Lake and Denver, you know, the hospital, you know, the, so healthcare always a big one. What do you want Grand Junction to be in? <laughs> now, why does that make you laugh? Well, like I have, you know, like what do I want it to be? Like I have a limited influence here. You know, it's like what I want is, a, you know, what everybody wants, a, a vibrant enough city, but not too big. <laughs> right? But not too big. You don't want a front range life. Well, you know, I would be there if I did, you know. Uh, I have two boys. We spend a lot of time out on the trails and uh, we spend a lot of time in the local pools you know, like Fruita Pool and Lincoln Park Pool. We walk in the parks. I want there to be more going on, a little bit. But, you know, still, I like the small city feel. That's why I'm here. But what a tough balance, right? Oh, yeah. Just enough to make you happy, but not too much to make you miserable. <laughs> I, I feel like this is going to be the challenge of this region. Yeah, well, I agree. Right now, we're seeing a lot of people moving from places where it is like that, within the state, but also nationally. They're finding cost of living benefits. They're finding lifestyle benefits. I mean, what's not to like, except when suddenly there's more of us here than, than is comfortable. You mentioned cost of living. Stina Sieg, I would love to see what the real estate scene is. Let's do it. I think you'll be uh, pleasantly surprised or jealous. Well, sir, thank you for talking You're with us. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. Have a great day. So, Ryan, as we walk to the real estate office, I want to show you this giant lot of nothing. An empty lot? A big one. I think it really is indicative of the promise of Grand Junction. The idea is that you're going to put a five-story glass and concrete office building here. The idea is, like, if you build it, they will come, but also they're already here and they need a place to work. Stina, office space is one thing. What about warehouse space? Because that has all kinds of economic repercussions. Well, this is actually like the warehouse space rainforest out here. There's so much of it. And so, and it's actually really cheap. And one of the theories as to why it's so cheap is because the pot industry hasn't really been able to grow here. Ah, so you don't have the giant grows that have taken up so much warehouse space on the front range. Exactly. And so a bunch of front range businesses are actually uh, non-pot businesses are moving out here because it's so much cheaper for them. So I wanted to give you just a little taste of what housing prices are like out here. So uh, you This know. is the classic storefront window with all the properties listed. Right, where you can, you know, buy your dream home in Grand Junction for, you know, 180000 or... Yeah, 180000 for three bedrooms, one bath, centrally located with a generous backyard, a shed, fully landscaped, and a sprinkler system. 
Or you could be in Denver and just buy the shed. <laughs> um, so here, prices are about half of what they are in Denver, sometimes less than that. What are incomes like these days in Grand Junction? Well, in Mesa County, I mean, it's definitely lower than the Front Range, about 20000 lower than the average for the state. So we're looking more around 40000 versus about 60000 for the rest of Colorado. This is a rack of bike bells right here on Main Street. Yes, yeah, really popular with toddlers. I imagine that parents would get a headache pretty quickly. We're in front of Brown Cycles. It's one of the many bike stores in town. It's also one of the many gear stores on Main Street. Just looking down here, we can see a used gear store, you know, a place that sells brand new equipment. And in just in this little area, there's about half a dozen. And it wasn't this way when I first came to town 10 years ago. This is an outdoor mecca. People who want that work-life balance are coming here. And it looks like they're spending money. Well, yeah, and it's the people who live here and also people who travel here. We have an REI, actually, in town, one of the smallest in the country, but still, it is here. <laughs> you know, and even though, like, oil and gas brings a billion dollars a year to this area, I mean, the outdoor industry is the fastest-growing industry here. Well, Stina, thanks for the tour of Main Street. Oh, well, thanks for coming to my adopted hometown. Stina Sieg is CPR's Western Slope reporter. All the music on today's show and tomorrow's comes from the Western Slope artists here. These are entries from our Solo on the Slope contest. The winner performs Friday night at the Avalon Theater in Grand Junction. When we tape an episode of the show on stage, tickets are available at CPR.org. From Grand Junction, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner in Grand Junction. And here on the Western Slope, people are crossing their fingers, hoping to lure a big new employer, the Bureau of Land Management. The BLM oversees more than 8 million acres of federal land in Colorado, and its headquarters may move from D.C. But to where exactly? It's just one of the Western Colorado issues we asked Governor Jared Polis about this week. He says he's spoken with the Interior Secretary about why Grand Junction is the right choice for the BLM. Not only is it closer to the lands we manage, but I think in many ways it would be transformative to the community, giving Mesa County and Grand Junction critical mass, more flights in and out of the airport. And so while, of course, we support all of Colorado, it would mean a lot more to our state if the BLM chose Grand Junction, which is what we're pushing for. Now, you stirred up a little bit of dust over this a couple of weeks ago when you said Denver is more likely because Grand Junction has fewer flights in and out of that airport. Uh, Grand Junction voters recently raised their lodging tax to provide money for incentives to the airlines. Do you think the state would chip in and help with that? Again, I think, you know, our challenge is how can we put together a compelling package for and with Grand Junction, with the strong support of the business community, uh, what it would mean to have, you know, daily flights to Washington, D.C. or to uh, California and New York. So uh, we certainly want to work with regional authorities in western Colorado to help make it as attractive as possible for the BLM, just to make the case that it makes sense for the BLM to locate in Grand Junction. I want to challenge this assumption that the BLM being closer to the lands it manages is necessarily a better steward of those lands. 
Doesn't that have everything to do with who's in power at the White House? The vast majority of folks that work for any federal agency like BLM are classified. They stay there. They work there for their career, one administration to the next. They follow the laws of Congress. Of course, there are political appointees at the top, and that matters. Uh, but the men and women who work at the BLM every day are the same people that work there under George Bush, under Bill Clinton, under Barack Obama. If they've been there long enough. Some of them probably even worked under Reagan and Carter. Blue sky with me here, Governor. In in Colorado 30 years from now, what would you want the Western Slope to be like? You know, I think Western Colorado will continue to thrive in in the 21st century economy. It's really positioned for success uh, with location-independent employment, with many uh, manufacturing companies. What does that mean, location-independent It means that people can increasingly choose to live where they want. Uh, whether that means telecommuting or working in a uh, small office. And a lot of those jobs, and it's across the skill spectrum, it's not just high skills jobs, it's not just architects or uh, business people, it's also a call center worker as an example, as long as you have high-speed internet connectivity. And of course, one of our top priorities is expanding high-speed internet access across western Colorado. But you can choose to live where you want and where you want to recreate or have a family. And western Colorado has, has a lot of those opportunities right in your backyard. And increasingly, we're seeing uh, individuals, small companies, and others really recognize that. And we have a strong and growing outdoor tourism and recreation industry. Uh, and the quality of life will only continue to improve. Now, the economy of western Colorado has historically relied a lot on oil and gas. Prices and production have been down for several years. Uh, But some people see hope for recovery with a project called Jordan Cove. Uh, It would involve a network of pipelines across the West to move natural gas to a port in Oregon for transport to international markets like China. You've been neutral on Jordan Cove. What does that mean? When it comes to oil and gas jobs, uh, when the prices are high, as you indicated, uh, it's a boom to the economy. There's lots of folks that at work at good-paying jobs. When there's a bust in the prices, many of those jobs go away. We've been through this a number of times. So what you need is a sustainable economic base. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't position yourself when prices are good. You certainly want to take advantage of that for your local economy. But it's not the type of industry that can be counted on day in and day out for providing jobs and being the backbone of a community. So it sounds like you don't want to build something of a permanent project for an industry that you see as cyclical. Do I have that right? Well, again, we're on any of these projects, we're, we're neutral. I mean, if it gets built, it gets built. But we're not going to hang our hat and bet on something that won't even create a single job in Colorado for eight years, and we'll only create those jobs if the price is right. So, I mean, I'm not a gambling man when it comes to the economic growth. You want to benefit from that sort of thing if it occurs. But you can't base your entire economic development strategy on something that might or might not happen. You know, much of the Western Slope is as politically red as your hometown of Boulder is blue. Uh, Mesa County, for instance, voted 65 percent for Trump, 35 percent for you in a different election. Uh, You've championed health care reform and said that that will be especially helpful on the Western Slope, where costs are exceptionally high. Beyond that, though, how do you build trust or support for your agenda when there's such a big philosophical gap, Governor Polis? Well, I've spent a lot of time in western Colorado. I visited uh, Orchard 
uh, Avenue Elementary and Grand Junction, uh, highlighting the benefits of free full-day kindergarten across our state. And the voters of Mesa County agree. They passed overwhelmingly a mill levy and a bond two years ago, uh, really value the schools. Uh, in terms of the savings on health care in the individual market, next year we're expecting price savings to families in Western Colorado of 15, 20, 25 percent, depending on where they live. There's different pricing zones. And those savings are real for people. And so it's really about bringing Republicans and Democrats together around practical solutions that save you money, so you have a little bit more left at the end of every month. Bringing Democrats and Republicans together, that sounds easy. Well, uh, you know, we did it around kindergarten, we did it around health care. So when you look at reinsurance on health care, hospital pricing transparency, uh, all of these bills that we pass that will really drive down rates, bipartisan, strong support from Western Slope Republicans, Janice Rich, Bob Rankin, and others. Uh, And when you look at free full-day kindergarten, it passed the State House, I think, 53 to 11 in its final form there, including strong support from voices from Western Colorado. So there's a lot more that unites us as a state. There's a lot more that unites us as a people than what divides us. And I think it's always important to focus on uh, we all care about our kids, and we all, when you're writing a check to your insurer or your health care provider, you all want that to be for less. Here's something that's proven a bit more divisive, though. Colorado has joined a group of states trying to change the Electoral College. Colorado has had a winner-take-all system, so the candidate who wins the presidential election in Colorado gets this state's nine electoral votes. And under this new plan, Colorado and other states would cast those votes for the winner of the national popular vote. Uh, This still has a ways to go. More states have to agree to the change to make it worth much. Uh, But there's a movement, as you know, to repeal this new law, and that movement began in western Colorado. We're going to hear from one of the organizers tomorrow. They argue the Electoral College protects smaller states like Colorado. What do you say to those critics? Well, I think the biggest fallacy with that is simply mathematics. Colorado is no longer a smaller state, so we uh, have nine electoral votes. It'll probably go up to 10 next year. The current electoral if a congressional college system, district is yes, added. exactly. The current electoral college system gives Wyoming every Wyomingite about twice the say over who's president than every Coloradoite. So while of course it discriminates more against votes in Texas and California and New York, uh, it absolutely hurts the impact of Coloradans on the outcome of presidential elections uh, if we don't simply have one person, one vote. But let's imagine the scenario where the candidate who wins Colorado does not win the national popular vote. Wouldn't you be frustrated if Colorado didn't honor the votes of its own people and threw its support behind someone who actually lost in this state? Well, what will actually have to happen for this to pass, and by the way, so as you know, there isn't, we, we still have our electoral votes. It's exactly the same. There's still an electoral college. This is for part it, of a compact. Right. For it to be abolished, what I think it will take is uh, it'll take a Republican candidate who wins the popular vote but then a Democratic candidate who wins the Electoral College. And then uh, many Republicans will be outraged that even though they won the national election, their candidate didn't become president, and they will join and say, look, we just sort of have whoever gets the most votes should be president of the United States. But don't you think it's a strange circumstance that if a, if a state votes for a particular candidate, it would not then send those votes to that candidate? Well, it's a, it depends whether you believe that it should be up to the individual or up to this strange group of electors that was set up hundreds of years ago, which aren't even bound to vote for the person that their state votes for. Um, It's a very kind of risk factor in our democracy. Look, rather than focus on electors, let's give every man, woman in this country 
a vote to say that one person is one vote. And your vote counts the same if you live in Wyoming, if you live in Colorado, or if you live in Texas. And for Coloradans, that means your vote, your vote would count a little bit more. Now, I'll say there wasn't a single Republican vote for this in the legislature. Well, as I said, it'll probably take the shoe on the other foot, and then Republicans would, would support this. Right now, they have this memory of Hillary Clinton getting more votes than Donald Trump, but Donald Trump having the Electoral College. So it would take the opposite scenario. Uh, let's say that Donald Trump gets more votes, but the Democrat wins the Electoral College and becomes president, and then it's very likely the country would abolish the Electoral College. This is interesting. Colorado, of course, moved up its presidential primary to Super Tuesday, uh, presumably with the idea that we'll see more of the candidates sooner, that we're a player, right? But uh, with the national popular vote measure, what incentive do candidates have to visit, you know, maybe Colorado is less small than it used to be, but we pale in comparison to a New York or a California, Florida, a Texas. What incentive would a candidate have to come here if the popular vote places so much emphasis on population? Aren't we going to see the bottoms of their planes as they're headed to much more populous places? Well, no, it has the effect of bringing candidates here if you're talking about the Electoral College, because especially if the state uh, is seen as leading Democratic, which it is, if you look at any of the maps that the various political prognosticators do, uh, if we want to actually have a real campaign for president here, uh, we need to make sure that every vote counts. Because once a state is firmly in the red column or the blue column, you're not going to get attention from presidential candidates under the Electoral College system. But we want Colorado to uh, be a real place where candidates are speaking to Colorado issues. June is Pride Month. Denver's LGBTQ community celebrated last weekend. And this weekend is Colorado West Pride Fest uh, with a parade Sunday on Main Street in Grand Junction. Uh, You are Colorado's first openly gay governor. And I wonder what advice you have for LGBTQ people who are in the closet or afraid to reveal who they are to friends and family. Well, we have a strong independent spirit here in Western Colorado. If you live your own life and uh, as long as you don't, um, you know, steal from your neighbor or bother them, you know, you're able to go your own way. And we value that diversity however you want to live your life. And whatever faith you are, whoever you love, whatever gender you are, whatever your ethnic background. And that diversity is a big part of our strength because we have different ways of thinking, people from different walks of life, all working together to grow our economy, contributing to our culture, to make our state even better. And to someone who's afraid to tell the truth about themselves? What would you say? Well, you don't have to tell anybody anything about yourself you don't want to. I mean, you know, if you want to, you can talk about your religion or who you're dating, but nobody should ever feel that they're obliged to uh, talk about their faith or their partner. But people should feel comfortable doing so when they want to. So, I mean, it's all part of finding a group of friends and family that support you and your decisions, and uh, whether it's a church-based group or uh, whether it's a group of friends that hang out, uh, you know, once a week at a bar or the local veterans uh, club. Thank you, Governor. Thank you. Democratic Governor Jared Polis speaking with us at the state capitol earlier this week about issues facing western Colorado, but which reverberate statewide. Tomorrow, Republican perspective from a Mesa County commissioner who's leading the fight to preserve the Electoral College. You know how they open movies with some sweeping vista, a breathtaking helicopter shot? Well, my arrival into the Grand Valley was kind of like that, but without the helicopter. All I had to do was leave I-70, pass through the tiny town of Debec, and head up the Grand Mesa Scenic Byway. 
About 20 miles up, someone was waiting for me. I'm Stuart Green, and I'm the author of Scenic Driving Colorado. Stuart, tell me where we are and what we are seeing. Well, we're right on the northern edge of the Grand Mesa on Skyway Point, which is a fabulous overlook. Uh, Looking west across the desert towards where Glen Junction is, we're looking down on the Mesa Lakes, and all the aspens are in spring green, and we can hear the peeping frogs down in the valleys below and all the fresh snow melt, and this is what driving around Colorado is all about. It's windy, and I'm surprised by just how much snow there is in late June, almost July. Well, it's been an epic year for snow, and I was just up on the top of the mesa, and there's two to four feet of snow still up there, which for this time of the year is kind of unheard of. You know, usually it's all melted, but it'll be great for August for the lakes to be filled up there. You know, the Grand Mesa has over 300 lakes on it. I call it the land of 300 lakes. It's positively emerald up here, and I saw a sign that said, Moose Country essentially. Beware of moose. And I didn't realize that the mesa was moose habitat. Well, moose, you know, which aren't native to Colorado, were introduced up by Rocky Mountain National Park north of there. And they've kind of spread all over Colorado. And we're coming up the highway here from the low elevations. We go through prime moose country, the kind of places you'd see in New England where moose like to hang out, you know, where there's lots of willows and marshes and that's their happy place. I think that if you hear the word mesa, You might picture a lot of those mesas, perhaps in Arizona, around the Grand Canyon, that are are pretty bare. They're just rock. This is such a different kind of mesa. First of all, uh, it's purported to be the world's biggest flat-top mountain. Uh, But it's lush. As you say, there's lakes. Uh, This is not some denuded tabletop. No, not at all. This is, you know, not at all like something you'd see in Utah or Arizona in the canyon country. Uh, It was originally deposited as big lava flows that were spread out flat in the bottom of a valley before everything eroded away around it. So that's why it's all flat and, you know, it's like 60 miles long. Stuart, it occurs to me that scenic byways are a good metaphor for life. They're, They're a way of getting off kind of the main drag stopping and smelling the roses, slowing down a little bit, and seeing something you otherwise might fly by at 75 miles an hour. Yeah, I agree, Ryan. I mean, I was actually thinking about it this morning when I was driving up here. You know, so often we think of bucket list destinations or the place at the end of the road or the end of the trail, but when you're driving a scenic road like this or any kind of backcountry road you know it's about looking and seeing things as moment to moment and seeing it all unfold before you before you might reach some scenic overlook but the other places are just as important too and just as beautiful i have driven to grand junction many times to visit my aunt who used to live in clifton and you know i didn't even think to get off at debeck head through mesa colorado and come on this scenic byway What an entry into the Grand Valley. Yeah, definitely. You know, like you can drive out on the top of the mesa to what they call Land's End, which is out at the far end of there, and you're standing right on the rim of the world, you feel like, and the whole Grand Valley spreads below you. It's a place I've been to a bunch of times, like at sunset, and, you know, the stars are just coming out, and the valley is just filled with twinkling lights from Grand Junction and Clifton and Palisade, and, you know, it's just one of those breathtaking moments. You know, you're at the edge of the world out there. 
Okay, let's leave the wind behind. Stuart Green is in our Grand Junction studio now. Again, author of Scenic Driving Colorado. Hi, Stuart. Hi, Ryan. Uh, There are 30 drives in your book all over Colorado, and I understand that one of your favorites is in the San Luis Valley of southern Colorado, Los Caminos Antiguos. I think that's the old roads. Uh, Take us there. Describe this drive. Well, you know, the San Luis Valley is a valley in southern Colorado that's the size of Connecticut. I mean, it's huge and flat and filled with artesian water, and it also has all of Colorado's earliest history, you know, the oldest towns in Colorado like San Luis and Antonito and the oldest churches in Colorado, you know, are there. This is the, you know, Hispanic culture of Colorado and Zebulon Pike spent time down there in 1806, 1807 in the winter when he explored Colorado. But, you know, it's a fabulous drive that goes over 200 miles across southern Colorado you can begin in Alamosa. You can go to the Great Sand Dunes National Park, you know, which is one of the real wonders of Colorado. Indeed. And which has become even more wondrous this year with all of the snow melt, something of a beachfront now uh, yeah. at the dunes. How about a drive that's uh, a little closer perhaps to the Denver metro area? Well, you know, I like Trail Ridge Road. You know, it's the highest continuous highway in the United States going from Estes Park to Grand Lake. And you know, you go up to the land above the trees, up above Timberline, and the National Park Service has wonderful interpretive trails up there and information, you know, that help explain the plants and animals that not only live but thrive at that altitude. Yeah, what have you seen on Trail Ridge Road in terms of wildlife? Well, on the top, many times I've seen herds of elk grazing at 12,000 feet, and there's bighorn sheep and, of course, marmots everywhere. I wonder if some of these drives, just as Colorado is, are becoming more crowded. Uh, definitely. definitely. <laughs> Especially the ones closer to the front range cities. Yeah. Are we to blame you for that, for advertising these? Maybe maybe give us an example of one that has not quite been discovered, although we may change that with this very conversation. Well, one that comes to mind is the Flattops Trail up in the north of the Flattops Wilderness Area between Meeker and Yampa, south of Steamboat Springs. Ah, lovely part of this state. Yeah, it's a wonderful place. And, you know, there's lots of lakes you can drive to, like Trapper's Lake. And, you know, it's a lot like Grand Mesa. There's lots of aspen forest and iconic views of Flattop Mountains instead of the pointed peaks. One of the first things you write about in this guide is that authors like yourself have, uh, quoting here, serious responsibility to address environmental ethics. And yet you're inviting people to get in their cars and drive, you know, which may not be the greatest environmental prescription. Put those ideas together for me. What's the trade-off here, do you think? Well, you know, when I, I've written over 40 books and you know, you you look at them as educating people and you try to educate people about this wonderful land that we have and how we take care of it and the impact we have on it and what we can do to lessen that impact. And, you know, at the end of the day, I hope that people, my books will help people care more about, you know, these uh, fragile environments we have in Colorado and the, the wonderful places we still have to go to. And yet that might require driving to them. Well, we still drive to them, and, you know, there's lots of great places you can get to in your car if you're what I call a steering wheel recreationist. So, you know, uh, it is it is a trade-off. You know, you hate to give away 
secret places, and I try not to do that, you know, respecting what a lot of local people might feel. Ah, you've left stuff out of books for that reason. Oh, definitely. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Stuart, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Stuart Green has written Scenic Driving Colorado, exploring the state's most spectacular back roads. It's in its fifth edition. He lives in Colorado Springs, but joined us here in Grand Junction. Now, a farm-to-table experience at a Grand Junction restaurant called 626 on Rood. It's named after its address, a couple of blocks off Main Street. We joined kitchen manager Josh Townsley between his prep table and oven. He showed us a signature dish, flatbread. The toppings vary from season to season, depending on what's growing at local farms. The flatbread that debuts tonight features a breathtaking array of ingredients. We'll start with the crust, though. It's made of mesquite flour, and it's tricky to work with. With the mesquite flour, it's very... uh... It's very soft and delicate. So typically with the flatbread, you would throw it straight onto the grill. But for this one, I spread out the rounds and put it in the oven for a bit just so it's easier to deal with. As, as I'm trying to lay out the flatbread, it's, it's very sticky and hard to lay out. He piles on goat cheese, then duck prosciutto. That starts with raw duck breast, cured and aged for up to two weeks. And after the two weeks, you start slicing the duck breast, and you have this, like, nice, deep red color in the meat. The action stops for a moment while Townsley greets a farmer delivering fresh, fist-sized heirloom tomatoes for a different dish. Well, if you happen to have extra later in the week, just, uh, just let me know, and I'll have somebody come pick them up. I'll let you know. Yeah. Um, and it could be, like, Friday. Yeah. Then, back to work on the flatbread, this time to deep-fry some jalapenos. So after all the ingredients are on the flatbread, we're going to pop it back in just to melt the cheese. Which only takes three to four minutes, so with that go-curd goat melts really quickly. The dish was almost done. It just needed a final touch, fresh flowers for garnish. He eyed the earthy colors on the flatbread and headed from the kitchen to the restaurant's attached garden where he chose bright marigolds and small red snapdragons. It's called a snapdragon because they can be different colors, yellows, oranges, purples, reds. When you uh, hold it up, you can kind of pinch it, and its mouth opens up like a dragon. <laughs> and Josh Townsley of 626 on Rude joins us in our Grand Junction studio. Hi, Josh. Hi, Ryan. How are you? I'm doing well. Nice to see you. And, and hearing how you think about color in a dish... Uh, It makes me wonder if there's any part of you that wanted to be a painter when you were a kid. (laughs) Definitely thought about it. I was always taking art classes growing up, always interested in like composition and different pieces. And growing up, helping my mom cook, just I translated that from like my canvas to cooking. Right. Well, a a pizza crust can be a canvas in that case. Do you uh, do you think you're a better cook than your mom now? Well, definitely, definitely, but we won't tell her that. (laughs) Uh, What do you remember her cooking when you were growing up? I just remember her making everything from scratch. She grew up on a farm, and so everything was handmade from all the sauces uh, all the way up. Wow. Getting fresh meat, beef, and everything. No ragu for you. No. (laughs) Okay. So the farmer who delivered tomatoes to you is Blaine Diffendaffer. 
of Palisade, possibly the best last name in Colorado, Diff Endeavor. <laughs> uh, what else is coming out of the local farms right now, like the latest thing you'll be adding to your menu? So our biggest purveyor, which actually delivers later this afternoon, is Fill to Fork. And right now we're going to be getting a bunch of fresh cherries in today. So we're starting our cherry season. They've been busy picking all week, and we'll see a bunch of cherries to process this afternoon. So those are Grand Valley-grown cherries. Yes, that's correct. Okay, and what do you imagine you'll be doing with those cherries? I think of that as a dessert food. Should I be thinking of cherries more broadly? Yes, you definitely can. On the flatbread, uh, we have a fermented cherry, so we'll take those uh, with sherry vinegar, some orange peel, and preserve them. And that's one of the dishes that, or one of the ingredients on the flatbread discussed earlier. What else might you do with cherries? We also have a cherry cheesecake where we're taking a cheesecake with a house, or sorry, cherries with a house-made uh, black walnut liqueur, combining that with black pepper, uh, baking them in small silicone molds to make a beautiful cheesecake. Oh, lovely. It sounds yes. like the walnut would maybe ground the cherries, so it's not quite so cloying. Yes, uh-huh. yes. I'm always interested in what farm-to-table restaurants can't get locally. Are there ingredients that you just simply can't get, uh, perhaps in the Grand Valley? It's definitely difficult in the Grand Valley just because of weather where it's so dry and it's so hot. A lot of um, produce kind of gets difficult to obtain. Um, Do you mean like lettuce, things like that? We do get lettuce early on. I am getting a lot of beautiful like uh, kale and gem lettuce from field to fork right now. So those we definitely can get. Have you ever requested something specifically of a farmer? Like, I need blank, grow blank. Uh, yes, we're working with uh, Phil to Fork, actually, uh, uh, beets. We're trying to get an heirloom beet. Um, and so they're, they've been growing that for us, and we should be seeing that in the next three weeks. I feel like beets are everywhere. Yes, yes. A beet salad seems to be ubiquitous on <laughs> menus. Is that what you're going to do with those beets? Uh, no, we are actually going to make a cherry tomato and heirloom beet sauce. Sauce? Yes, a relish. Homemade like your mother's, I guess. Yes, yes. Uh, I always think of peaches, of course, when I'm in this part of the States. When will those start to hit your menu? We'll uh, start having those on the menu mid to late August. And what do you imagine you'll do with those? Uh, We try to do a wide variety of different things with them. We'll incorporate them into a flatbread some way. Last year we did an ancho glazed peach uh, we'll also do our dessert we do every year, the Peach Napoleon, which is a three-layered, uh, tiered dessert with uh, house-made um, creme fraiche on it. With creme fraiche. Yeah. Okay. Do you ever get tired of peaches? <laughs> no, I love them. They're so much fun and so versatile in all the things you can do with them. One thing, though, is that peaches are often juicy, mm-hmm. uh, which is lovely when you're biting into just a peach. But when you're cooking with them, I think that can get somewhat problematic. Uh, any thoughts on how to integrate peaches into dishes without kind of inundating it with water? Uh, yeah, there several different things we can do with them. We'll also try like drying them, fermenting them, uh, just different ways to preserve the peach so we can be using it all throughout the year. Fermenting them. How do you do that? Yes. So we like to do a lacto-fermentation, which is uh, a simple salt brine. So we'll take 2% of the peaches and uh, the water to cover the top and just use 2% of salt into this solution and let it sit covered for 
two weeks up to a month, and this will preserve them where we can use them all year round. But that sounds presumably like something the home cook could do. Yes, yes, you could do it at home. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily think of Grand Junction as a mecca for foodies, uh, certainly for the oil and gas industry, maybe for people coming back exhausted from a mountain bike ride. Um, But how do you, I don't know, just explain the food experience in this community before we go? Yeah, uh, the food experience is always changing and growing. And at 626, um, with our farm-to-table, getting everything from farms, we're always trying to change and develop and grow. And one of the things we have done is splitting up our menu into two parts, herbivore and omnivore. So we're catering catering to plant-based people and growing with all the changes. Well, thanks so much for being with us, Josh. Yes, thanks for having me. Josh Townsley is kitchen manager at 626 on Rood in downtown Grand Junction. I was really charmed by our next guest when he performed for us last December at our holiday extravaganza, an original song about a grinchly loner who learns to love Christmas. Letting go is a key to moving on. For all anxiety, here's to better times. I say Christmas is for miracles and all of a sudden there she was. Standing in the snow beneath the light Seen this so, so long I've had this holiday all wrong This year I'll be doing Christmas right David Starr owns Starr's Guitars on a main street not too far from here in Cedar Edge, Colorado. Starr travels to New York City this weekend for the Independent Music Awards. His latest album, South and West, is actually up for Country Album of the Year. And hello again, David. Hi. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. This nomination so exciting. How did you find out about it? I wonder if you were surprised when you found out. Well, yeah. A couple of things. I, I found out it from my public, about it from my publicist in Nashville. Uh, they said, hey, you've been nominated. And I said, I didn't know I'd entered. And they said, well, we entered you. <laughs> um, the, the other thing that was a bit of a surprise was was that it would be country album of the year because I I kind of don't consider myself a country artist. But that I, I sat the other day, on, I was on an airplane, and I just put the earbuds on and listened to that whole record all the way through. And there's, you know, there's a lot of steel guitar and mandolin and, and that sort of thing. So uh, that's what you get. I have decided not to go to the thing this weekend. Oh, really? Well, I had a horrible day traveling the other day, and I've got to go to Nashville next week. And I thought, there's the real chance that I could leave Saturday morning and not even get to the thing at 5 o'clock on, in New York City. So I'm going to find out about it from home. From afar. So, okay. So I just I decided to hedge my bets. There was nothing on a fire horizon and everything at my feet. talk about the label country music i mean aren't we at the point where it all just kind of blends together you have rappers performing with traditional country artists everyone's writing music for each other yep i mean are there solid lanes that perform performers should adhere to i I don't think so and i i think the big catch-all now is americana because that's kind of everything else you know but I, i grew up in a time the music that influenced me the most was jackson brown and the eagles and poco and 
Graham Parsons, Burrito Brothers, all that stuff where country was sort of mixed with, with rock at the time. And so it's just natural for me to do what I do. Well, know? speaking of mashups of sorts, why don't we talk about your latest project, Beauty and Ruin, which I understand has roots that go back as as far as the Civil War. What, what was, what's your elevator pitch for this project? The, the book, there was a book written by my grandfather, and I have a copy that I just got off of Amazon.com called Of What Was, Nothing Is Left. It came out in 1972. He of passed what away. Was, Nothing is left. Yes. He passed away the following year in 73. So a few years ago, I read the book and I said, you know, there's a lot of good song material in there. I took it to my friend John Oates, who I'd worked with some before. Of Holland Oates. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And he said, what are we doing with this? And I said, read it. You tell me if there's songs in there. I knew the answer already. So we we took this book and gave it to a number of my songwriting friends in Nashville and said, come back to us with either a song written or partially written or whatever. And uh, the book is the book is uh, sort of takes place at the end of end of the 1800s, so it's a little a little bit after the Civil War. But there's a lot of a lot of uh, stuff about family dysfunction and tragedy and bad decisions and all the stuff that really is pretty timely because uh, people are people, right? And they haven't changed. They haven't changed. No. The, the tagline of this book that your grandfather wrote is a suspense packed tale of Arkansas. Yes, your family roots are in Arkansas, yep. and so you wanted to turn this into music, and uh, it appears that there was no shortage of ideas in this book. Why why don't we hear Rise Up Again from the album, um, which is still in the works, Beauty and Ruin. This will be the first single. You see, I was cut down when I was running at full speed, thinking everything I wanted was everything I need, betting I was faster than any wicked wind that blew. This is almost gospel to me. It gives yeah. me the gospel goosebumps. That's David a good. Star. That's a very good thing. I, you know, I've talked last last winter. I, I had an emergency surgery last August, and right before I went into the surgery the night before, I had a very vivid dream about my father and grandfather, and that song came out of that. So it didn't. Some of the songs that are on the new project came directly out of the book, and a couple of them found their way into it, and sort of became part of the mythology of the book. And that's. That's one of them because my grandfather wrote the book. It was my he was my father's father, and there's a it's 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 serious mojo on that song for me. I get I get the same I get the same goosebumps, so that's good. Yes, but this song is a reflection of the fragility of life. You could have lost yours. I could have, but what I took from that dream that I had about those two coming to me was that it wasn't time. You know, so I I found something positive in it, and I said let's. Let's do that. And I, I gave the song to John Oates, and he, he sent it back with some revisions, and we're co-writers on the song, and I couldn't be happier with it. And that there's a video that goes with it that you've seen, but big secret. Nobody else has seen it yet. A video? Will you let us share that? I think uh, I think when the time comes. When the time comes, okay. Uh, August, <laughs> I, I, th- I think the, the, between <laughs> me and the marketing people, we've decided August is when that's all going to hit the 
hit the air. Well, yes. I, I was asking for an exclusive David Starr. You know what? Um, uh, yes. Yes. How's that? Okay. For an answer. Thank you. We'll post that as soon as we can. Very good. From this project, David Starr of Cedar Edge, Colorado. And I, I wonder if you think about your grandfather, I don't know, looking down on you or lis- listening to this music. Um, do you feel that you have some connection to him in in the beyond, I, I don't well, want to put words in no, your I mouth. Kinda, I don't know what your faith is. I actually kind of do. I actually kind of do because he and I were very close. But I never read these books when I was young. I just didn't get it. I was just a kid doing what kids do. And so when I was sixteen, he passed away. What I have come to understand is that he was on the same path that I am on in a way because he's an he was an older guy, older guy in touch with his muse. You know, just following that creative path. He followed his muse in writing that book. You followed yours in making an album based on it. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. David Starr owns Starr's Guitars in Cedar Edge, Colorado. He's been nominated for Country Album of the Year at the Independent Music Awards. And his latest project, Beauty and Ruin, is based on a book written by his grandfather more than 40 years ago. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner in downtown Grand Junction.